Good morning. Seems that I have to log back in. All right. Well, if we go late today, you can blame it on Keith's verbal version of Google Maps. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. I've, uh, I've heard rumblings since last week's message that I may not have been clear about how the things that were talked about last time reconcile with Jesus' forceful words in Matthew 5.19, where he says, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's a very forceful statement. Let me try to clarify briefly before we move on to the Davidic covenant, because this is exceedingly, exceedingly important. I believe with all my heart that we are called by God to keep and to teach the law of God. Indeed, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who loves as much as I do to study and to teach from the Pentateuch, the law of God, because I delight in the law of the Lord. I would never say that we are not required to comply with God's law. We absolutely are, and we are absolutely required to comply with God's law, every letter of it. But we are called to comply with the spirit of every letter, not with the letter as an end in itself. And that is a critical and biblical distinction. It is the spirit of the law that goes way beyond the letter of the law. It's not a lesser standard. It's a greater standard than the letter of the law. In 2 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul says God has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. A commitment to following the letter instead of the Spirit of the law is a path that leads to death, not to life. If you think that's not a path to which we are all prone in our sinful nature, think again. When Paul saw that the Apostle Peter was being enticed by the Judaizers of his day, by the legalists who believed that the letter of the law could make them righteous, he rebuked Peter and he even rebuked his close friend Barnabas. And he said that they were not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. And he recorded that rebuke in Galatians 2, for all generations of believers to behold so that we too will be ever vigilant against that same destructive error that says the law is about rules. Guys, this is where the rubber meets the road. How do we comply with the spirit of the law without becoming enslaved again to the letter? As we saw last week, Jesus answered that question. And he drew his answer from the law itself. From Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus 19. He said in Matthew 22, 37 to 40, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, Jesus said, depend the whole law and the prophets. 
to use Paul's words, love is the fulfillment of the law. So how does it work out in practice for us who are in Christ, who have the law of God written upon our hearts, to meet the requirement of God's law? It is by loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and by loving our neighbors as ourselves. Love is the fulfillment of the law. When Christians ask the question, which of the specific commandments of the law of Moses are we still required to keep? They are asking the wrong question. What they should be asking is, how can I love God and love my fellow man in response to the amazing love that he has poured out upon me in Jesus Christ? With that question and that commitment to love in mind, every word of God's law becomes supremely relevant. Because it shows us who our God is. It shows us what His character is like. It shows us how His character works itself out in our relationship with Him and our relationships with others. It provides us principle by example to give us a great challenge in our lives to understand better how His character plays out. And apart from that commitment to love, everything that we attempt to do to comply with God's law is nothing but filthy rags. All right, enough about last week. This morning is the first of two messages in which we'll examine the Davidic covenant, the third covenant that we've gotten to, and and there will be a total of four. Next week, we're going to continue with the Davidic covenant, and we're going to look intensely at the the, uh, perfect fulfillment of that covenant. That message will be all about Jesus Christ. So will this one, but this one's sort of stage-setting. Here's where we're going today. We're going to see that the Davidic covenant is a unilateral covenant. We're going to examine the specific promises of that covenant in the passage that Ray just read. We're going to see that it is an everlasting covenant. We'll also discover that there is a conditional element within the covenant we'll see that God declares it to be an irrevocable covenant. And then we're going to end today with a bit of a teaser for next week. We're going to see a very early preview toward the beginning of God's Word that points to the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in Jesus Christ. And that's what next week will be all about. First, this is a unilateral covenant. Now, we said in the first message of this series that three of the four major biblical covenants are unilateral, that they depend only on the promises of God and on His trustworthiness to fulfill those promises. The Davidic covenant is one of those three. The other two are the Abrahamic covenant, which we started with, and the new covenant that's coming next. We also saw that the Mosaic covenant, which is the bilateral covenant, ends up not being So bilateral after all, because God is the one who ends up fulfilling it, not us. We said uh, when we looked at the Abrahamic covenant in the very first message of the series that there's a verbal pattern that 
that kind of jumps out at us when we look at the unilateral covenants in the Old Testament, and it is the presence of the phrase, I will. In the passage from 2 Samuel 7, verse 8 through verse 17, when God goes into the details of the covenant he's making with David, the phrase, I will, occurs nine times. I will or the Lord will. Uh, One of those two statements. The unilateral nature of this covenant is also very clear from the content of the specific promises in it. For instance, in verses 14 and 15, God says that even though the descendants of David will sin... And even though he will punish them for their sin, he will by no means revoke his covenant promises to David and to David's seed. So God is declaring this to be unconditional, unilateral. He's going to fulfill it, he's going to fulfill it even when David's descendants mess up. He makes this point very clear in Psalm 89. By the way, Psalm 89 is a marvelous and poetic restatement of the Davidic covenant. And in that passage, uh, in verse 35, God says, Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. God makes this covenant, and he swears by himself to keep it. He doesn't need any other witnesses, because he swears by himself. The second Samuel 7 is one of the two core passages in which God's covenant with David is presented. The other is 1 Chronicles 17, verses 7 through 16. And that, uh, that passage uh, is almost word for word the same as the second Samuel passage. The passage says, uh, well, the first, before I show it to you, let's just go through the provisions of it and then we'll see how these are stated within the passage. These are the promises. First, God will make a great name for David. Second, God will provide a place of rest for the enemies of Israel, uh, from the enemies of Israel for Israel through David and David's descendant. God will make a house for David. God will give David a seed, descendants. God will give David a kingdom and a throne and will grant to his descendants sonship and correction. And finally, God says to David that his descendant will make a house for God. All right, let's take those uh, first, let's see them within the passage, and then we'll kind of break this down. Starting in verse 8, God starts, he, he says to Nathan, Therefore you shall say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be ruler over my people, Israel. He's no longer shepherding sheep, he's shepherding the people of God. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And then he says, I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. Secondly, he says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I'll plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. And he says, they've been afflicted ever since the time of the judges. But he says, I will give you rest from your enemies. So he's going to give them a place in which Israel will find respite and rest from their enemies. 
And that place, uh, in that place, they will be disturbed no more, never again. He says to David in verse 11 at the end of it, I will make a house for you. We'll talk about what that means. And then he says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant, your seed. This is the same word that was used when God promised a seed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, I will establish his kingdom. And then later on in verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, a kingdom and a throne. I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, uh, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay, let's take these one at a time and break them down. First, God says to David, I will make a great name for you like the names of the other great men on the uh, on the earth. Well, to make a name for someone means to build up their reputation, their fame. There's no question that in the near term, God honored this great promise to David. During the reigns of David and his son Solomon, Israel became one of the most powerful nations on the earth. In spite of his grievous sins, David is remembered throughout Scripture as a man after God's own heart. I'd call that a great name. And in spite of his son's grievous sins, his son Solomon is remembered as the wisest man who ever lived. Under Solomon's rule, Israel experienced a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity. But as we'll talk about next week, David's greatest claim to fame by far is that God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, is from his lineage. So God said he would give David a name. And Sorry, I didn't put that up. And then he said in verses 9 through 11, he will give him a place of rest from his enemies. And he'll give to Israel a place of rest from their enemies. Now, God had already promised to give Israel a place, right? Uh, in the Abrahamic covenant. A place in which he would dwell in their midst. In this covenant to David, God promises that he'll plant them permanently, permanently in a place of his choosing. And he says they'll not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. We saw in the last couple of weeks that the participation by any given generation of Israelites in the land promise and in the blessings that come with being in the land was contingent upon their obedience to The Mosaic Covenant. Because of their persistent and incurable disobedience to the law of Moses, God eventually removed Israel from the land. And they were taken away into captivity by other nations. In fact, except for a relatively brief period of time under the reign of Solomon, there was never a time when Israel experienced rest from their enemies in any significant way. And as long as their ability to remain in the land in peace was dependent upon their obedience to the law, their continuation in the land would be very precarious. And yet God clearly promises here under the Davidic covenant 
that there will come a time when Israel will dwell in peace in the place of his choosing, and they will never be disturbed or removed from that place again. As of today, the fulfillment of that promise is still future. Unless you make it so allegorical that it's almost meaningless, it's kind of hard to to <laughs> to say that that promise has already been fulfilled. Israel is in the land after a fashion today, but it would hardly be arguable that they are at peace and rest from their enemies. <laughs> All right. A name, a place of rest, I did it again, and a house for David. At the beginning of 2 Samuel 7, David tells the prophet Nathan that he desires to build a house for God. So David, at the beginning of the chapter, David is talking about building a house for God. But God says in this covenant, first, he says, I will build a house for you. In fact, in verses 5 through 7 of 2 Samuel 7, God says to David that in the entire history of Israel, he has never requested that anyone build a house for him as a dwelling place for his glory. He says, my dwelling place has always been the tabernacle. You know that tent that I designed, I, God, designed? You remember the tent, the construction for which I enabled by putting my spirit upon these men so that all that they did was according to my plan and my design? That tent that was the place at which you could draw near to me? All of that was it was God's doing, not man's doing. And so God is kind of, in, in a way, he's sort of mildly rebuking David here and saying, don't worry about where I dwell. He's going to come back to that. All right. Uh, God then declares in his covenant with David in verses 8 through 17 that He's going to give these promises to David, and he says in verse 11 that he will make a house for David. Now, before this, in chapter 5, Hiram, king of Tyre, had already sent envoys to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons, and they had already built an elaborate, ornate house for David. So in chapter 7, God is not talking about building a physical house for David. He already has one of those, and it's really cool. God is saying that he will build, beginning from David, a royal household, a kingly dynasty. And that dynasty will last for many generations. But again, the greatest expression of this promise is going to come in its long-term fulfillment. And we'll see more about how the house of David unfolds. God is going to Give David a name, a place of rest from enemies. He's going to build him a house, and he's going to give him a seed in chapter 7, verse 12. He says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your seed after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Just as with the seed that God promised to Abraham, the scriptures present both a near-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment of the promise of the seed. In the near term, God would give David a descendant, a son, 
who would rule on his throne and from whom would come a long line of kings. But just as with the seed of Abraham, there is one preeminent seed, singular, of David to whom these covenant promises were ultimately made and in whom they will ultimately find their fulfillment. God will one day put one of David's descendants on his throne and that descendant will be different from all of the others. That one seed will rule from then on and forevermore. And of course, that one true seed of David is Jesus Christ. We'll have a lot more to say about that as we proceed with this covenant. A name, a place of rest, a house, a seed, a kingdom, and a throne. God tells David that he will raise up his descendant after him and he will establish that that descendant's kingdom. He says, he will build a house for my name. We'll come back to that in a moment. And he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God's promise to establish a throne and a kingdom go hand in hand, just as does the promise to to, uh, create for David a house, a dynasty. In the near-term view, the house of David maintained rule over the consolidated tribes of Israel only until the death of his son Solomon. According to 1 Kings 11, at the end of his life, Solomon became a syncretist. Meaning he mixed the worship of Yahweh with the worship of false gods. He even built temples to the false gods who were worshipped by his 700 wives and 300 concubines. It's not hard to figure out what his first mistake was. Uh, and 1 Kings 11.4 says, It came about when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David had been. Then in 1 Kings 11, God told Solomon that after he died, he would tear away from him the kingdom and give it to Solomon's servant. But in verse 13 of 1 Kings 11, God told Solomon that he would leave him one tribe for the sake of his servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which he had chosen. And that tribe was the tribe of Judah. Very soon after Solomon's death, the people of Israel were divided into two kingdoms with the ten northern tribes called the House of Israel under the rule of kings from those ten tribes. And only Judah and Benjamin and a portion of the Levitical priests were in the southern kingdom known as the house of Judah. So you've got the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That division between the two houses has never been resolved. But it will most certainly be resolved when God's covenant promises to David finally find their fulfillment in Christ. We'll see that very clearly asserted in God's word next week when we talk about the finishing out of this great covenant. If you want to read ahead on that score, read Ezekiel 37, in which God talks about taking the two houses and bringing them back together under one king. During the recorded history of the kingdom of Judah, 
as with Israel, there was a mix of bad kings, really bad kings, and not so bad kings. Some were gross idolaters who had no use for the God of David. Most were syncretists, permitting elements of pagan idolatry to coexist with the worship of the true God. And a very small handful were men of faith who earnestly sought to walk with God and to serve Him. Now, they were all sinners. And they and the nation over which they ruled suffered greatly for their sins. Yet just as with the promises that God had made to Abraham, he never negated his promises to David. God never overturned his covenant with David and his seed, even when the Israelites were at their very worst. And the day is coming when every single promise of this covenant will be fulfilled in perfect and infinite measure because God's covenant promises do not depend on men. A name, a place of rest, a house, a seed, a kingdom and a throne, and sonship. And with that sonship, the promise of correction. Second Samuel 7, verses 14 and 15, God says to David, I will be a father to him, to your seed, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. The first part of this promise is sonship. God said that he, God, would be a father to David's descendant and that David's descendant would be a son to him. The second part of the promise is correction. We've already talked about the fact that God chastised Solomon by taking all but one and then ultimately two of the twelve tribes away from his dominion. And he chastised the descendants of Solomon over and over and over again because of their persistent stubbornness and unfaithfulness. When they sinned, he says here that he will chastise with them with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. That means God will judge his people through other people. Uh, he will bring other nations against Israel and against Judah in judgment. And that's exactly what he did. Uh, But a descendant of David would eventually come who would not be judged for his own sins. He would be judged for the sins of his people. And that descendant will be God's son in the most perfect sense. The last promise. Okay, We've seen a name, a place of rest, a house, a seed, a kingdom and a throne, sonship and correction, and lastly, a house for God's name. In verse 13, God finally comes back around to David's request to build a house for God. And he tells him, you won't be the one who builds it, but your seed will build me a house. Solomon, David's son, constructed an ornate and wonderful temple in Jerusalem to be the central sanctuary, the place in which God's people would gather to draw near to his presence and to meet with him. But even Solomon recognized that this was all just a picture of a much greater reality. In 1 Kings chapter 8 and verses 26 to 30, Solomon is dedicating the newly built temple 
And he says, Now therefore, O God of Israel, let thy word, I pray thee, be confirmed, which thou hast spoken to thy servant, my father David. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have built. (laughs) He says, I built this wonderful temple, but I know it does not contain the God who created the universe. Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain thee. And so what Solomon asks of God is that when God's people pray toward this place, that God might hear in heaven his real dwelling place and forgive them. That's a a pretty powerful prayer. Solomon got the fact that God can't be contained. But a descendant of David would come who would build a true house for God's name. A house that transcends the earthly temple by an infinite measure. Again, I'm kind of teasing you because we're going to say a lot more about that next time. This covenant, God declares to be an everlasting covenant. 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 through 16 God says that he will give David a seed, he will uh, establish his kingdom, and then he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In verse 15 he says, my loving kindness shall not depart from him. In verse 16 he says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Three times God says, it will not end. There are many other passages that say this. The house of David, the throne of David, the kingdom of David would be established by the plan and decree of God, not the plan and decree of David, and they would be everlasting. Now, some may think that because there has not been an unbroken line of kings descended from David, lasting all the way from David to the present, that that somehow means God has broken his covenant promises to David. That goes back then to what we said at the very beginning of this series. Even a unilateral covenant can have some conditional elements. In the case of the Abrahamic covenant, we saw that participation by any given generation of Israelites in the land was dependent on whether or not they honored the commandments of the Mosaic covenant. If they disobeyed God's law, and they persisted in that disobedience, he would pluck them out of the land by the hand of their enemies and take them away into captivity. And that's what he did. Nonetheless, God would not nullify a single promise of the covenant he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He himself would see to it that those promises were fulfilled perfectly. The same paradigm is true of the Davidic covenant. It's a unilateral covenant that God swore by his own holiness to fulfill. But the continuing participation by the sons of David and Solomon in that covenant was conditional. Now let me show you a couple of passages that point this out very directly. In David's words to Solomon shortly before David's death, David said to Solomon, I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. And then he 
He said, keep charge of the Lord your God. Walk in His ways. And then he said, verse 4, so that Yahweh may carry out His promise which He spoke concerning me, saying, if, if your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, then you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. If all of the kings of Israel had had obeyed the law, there would never have not been a king in Israel in the line of David. You with me? In 1 Kings 8, 25, God says much the same. This is Solomon's words to Israel at the dedication of the temple, and he's remembering God's conditional, the conditional component of God's declaration to David. Now therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with thy servant David my father that which thou hast promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your sons take heed to their way to walk before me as you have walked. Now God will ultimately fulfill his covenant promises to David. But if the kings who succeeded David did not walk with him, there would be there would come a time when they indeed would lack a man to sit upon the throne. And that's how it played out in Israel's history. One thing the covenants show us with great consistency is that any time God places conditions upon us in order to experience his blessing, we blow it and we experience his judgment. Every time. Because of Solomon's unfaithfulness and idolatry, God tore most of the kingdom away from him and from his successors. And he eventually removed the house of Judah from the land altogether, taking them away into captivity and leaving, leaving them without a king on this earth at all. Many have taken this to mean that the Davidic covenant is history as far as the physical descendants of Israel and Judah are concerned. That God has taken these covenant promises away from the literal house of Israel and the house of Judah and he has given them to the church as the new Israel, the Israel of God. That view is known as replacement theology. That is, that the church has replaced literal Israel as the heirs of the covenant promises. Now, I want to be very clear. I have the utmost respect for many who hold that view. Some of them are among the most diligent scholars of the word that I know anything about. But I have to handle the word as I see it and understand it. And I simply cannot reconcile replacement theology with what I believe to be some of the most forceful statements in God's word in both testaments regarding his unfinished plans for Israel. Indeed, it seems to me that the same line of thinking, the assumption that God was done with the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, existed during the time leading up to the exiles and during the exiles. And I believe God very directly addressed that way of thinking, declaring it to be a grievous misjudgment of his faithfulness to his promises. In Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 19 to 26, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says Yahweh, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that the day and night will not be at their appointed time, then 
My covenant may also be broken with David my servant, and he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And with the Levitical priests, my ministers. And then he says, as the hosts of heaven cannot be counted, as the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the seed of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. And then in verses 23 and following of that same passage, the word of the Lord comes again to Jeremiah saying, have you not observed what this people have spoken, saying the two families... The house of Israel and the house of Judah, which the Lord chose, He has rejected them. Thus they despise my people. No longer are they as a nation in their sight. Beloved, I think people are saying that right now, today. They're saying those same words. Have you not seen the two families which the Lord chose? He has rejected them. Thus they despise my people, no longer are they as a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, If my covenant for day and night stand not, and the fixed patterns of heaven and earth I have not established, then I would reject the seed of Jacob and and David my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I will... Restore their fortunes, and I will have mercy upon them. As far as I, as I can see here, God is saying that the only way to undo his promises to David, as those promises apply to the two sets of tribes, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, is to undo his covenant for day and night and for the fixed patterns of heaven and earth. In other words, If you can do away with God's created order, then he will be done with Israel and Judah. There's an Orthodox Jew who got saved. Many of you know his name, Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Ariel Ministries in Israel. He did a series that I listened to when I was a baby Christian. He came to Texas A&M and he did a series to a group of us campus crusaders. And the title of the series was How to Get Rid of Israel. And this passage and the similar passage in Jeremiah 31 were the punchline to his series. He said, it's actually not complicated. It's hard, but it's not complicated. You just have to get rid of the fixed order of creation and then God will be finished with Israel. To my mind, we're treading on very thin ice if we allow our rules of biblical interpretation to take the plain sense of such a forceful statement by God and to make that plain sense essentially meaningless. That's just me. It may sound to you when I say those words like I didn't mean what I said about respecting people who disagree with me. I'm just being passionate about something that's, that I find to be uh, compelling. But you know what? When we get to heaven, we will all have been wrong about something we found compelling. As we'll see when we get to the new covenant, this isn't the only time that God says something this forceful about his unfinished plans for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. (laughs) There are dozens of restoration passages that speak 
of the people of Israel and Judah, regathered from the four corners of the earth, reunited as one kingdom, restored to the land of promise to dwell with God in uninterrupted peace from then on and forevermore under the rule of the perfect king in the line of David who will reign in righteousness and justice from then on and forevermore. And we're going to look at some of those next week. Now I want to end with... uh, a very early preview of the Davidic covenant fulfilled. And this will be a little teaser for where we're going next time. Turn to Genesis 49. Not everything that you're going to need to see will be up here on the slide. So turn to that passage, Genesis 49. In that passage, Jacob presents his patriarchal blessing to each of his 12 sons. And and it's here that we find the beginnings, the seed form of the Davidic covenant. And this just blows my mind. By this point in the narrative of Genesis, anyone who's been paying attention would expect that the preeminent blessing of Jacob would go to whom? Joseph. God had elevated Joseph to the the position of second in command over all the kingdom of Egypt. Remember when Joseph was a kid, God came to him in two dreams and told him his mother and his father and his brothers would all bow down to him. Well, that's what they were doing at this point. Because he had a position of supreme authority in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And through Joseph, God had preserved his covenant people from death during an extended famine, a seven-year famine that impacted Egypt and all the nations that surrounded Egypt. In chapter 48, when Jacob blessed the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, you remember he crossed his hands and blessed the, the second-born first, Jacob said in chapter 48, verse 22, to Joseph, I give you one portion more than your brothers. Now, what does that mean? That means Joseph got the right of the firstborn. Because in Israel and Judah and in the surrounding nations, the firstborn son got a double portion. If you had four sons, you divided your inheritance up into five pieces and you gave two of them to the firstborn. If you had six sons, you'd made seven pieces and gave two of them to the firstborn. But God said, the right of the firstborn goes to Joseph. Not to my firstborn, who was Reuben. At the beginning of chapter 49, Jacob gives his patriarchal blessing to his firstborn, Reuben. And it turns out not to be a blessing at all. He says, Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. And with those words, Jacob is referring back to an event recorded in Genesis thirty-five twenty-two, when Reuben went in and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Jacob, Israel, heard of it. So Reuben lost the preeminent blessing. He'd already lost the birthright. He lost the preeminent blessing because of that sin. There can be little doubt that once the 12 sons of Israel heard their father Jacob say that Reuben the firstborn would not receive the preeminent blessing, that the one who would receive it would be Joseph, right? But by the mouth of Jacob, in verses 8 through 12 of Genesis 49, God provided a big surprise. Not only to the sons of Jacob, but to every generation of Israelites who would hear these words afterward. Because we find there that Jacob, by God's direction, gives the preeminent blessing not to Joseph, but to Judah. And in the words of this amazing blessing, we find the beginnings of God's plan 
to raise up a king from the tribe of Judah who will rule over all the peoples of the earth. Jacob said to his son, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. And then he said, Judah is a lion's whelp. Look at these images that are presented that I've got highlighted up here because we're going to talk about them. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? Then back to the idea of dominion. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. This is the promised one that's coming. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. I love this passage because every image presented in it is found later in Scripture in both Old and New Testaments in passages that are strongly associated with the promise of Messiah and with the blessings that will be granted to those who dwell in his kingdom. At the heart of this blessing that Jacob gives to his son Judah is the promise that one will come from his tribe, the tribe of Judah, who will rule not only over all of Jacob's sons, all of Israel, but who will rule over the peoples, plural, the nations of the earth. The mention of a a donkey's colt, a foal, is also very significant. The one who will reign as just and righteous king over all the people of the earth will come first with humility and gentleness. And Zechariah, First, let me put this passage up again. This is Judah 49, uh, Genesis 49, 8 through 12 with a little bit different highlighting. The only two things you see there in yellow are he ties his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. I want to look at that image for a moment. In Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 10, the prophet Zechariah writing almost 900 years after Moses presents both sides of this contrast. Dominion and humility. He speaks of the worldwide dominion of the king of kings. The one whose dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And he says that that king will come humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's the same words. Jesus fulfills this prophecy of Zechariah half a millennium later, as recorded in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 7. Just before the triumphal entry, when they approached Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples, he sent the disciples and he said, Go into the village opposite you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt, the foal of a donkey, with her. Untie them, bring them to me. And he says, Then Matthew records in verse 4, This took place that what was spoken through the prophet, he's talking about Zechariah, might be fulfilled saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. And he brought the donkey, the colt, and the colt, and laid on them their garments on which he sat. 
Another image in the Genesis 49 passage is the image of abundant wine and abundant milk. He ties his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Vines are so plentiful that they're being used as hitching posts. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. In Isaiah 55, the prophet Isaiah ties the images of abundant wine and milk with the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He says, ho, and that means check this out. Pay attention. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. And as for the image of the lion, I didn't make a slide for this one, but Jesus is the one in Revelation 5.5. Actually, I did. Judah is a lion's whelp. This is back in Genesis 49. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. I'm getting to the end here, so I know I'm going over, but bear with me. This is cool. <laughs> Revelation 5, 1 through 5. When it's time for the, the, the scroll with the seven seals to be broken and the judgments of God to be poured out upon the earth, John sees this, this dilemma going on in heaven where they're looking for someone worthy to open the scrolls. And who is the one who is found worthy? Verse 3 of Revelation 5, No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And in the very next verse, that same one is referred to as the Lamb who was slain. From the very earliest passages of God's revelation to mankind, he begins the unfolding of his amazing plan of redemption that will be accomplished through the King of Kings, the one from the tribe of Judah who will reign on the throne of David over all the earth in perfect righteousness and justice forever. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Next week we're going to look, we're going to plunge a lot further into the passages like this that speak of the perfect coming fulfillment of the promises that God made to David. Loving Father, thank you for this body. Thank you for their zeal for you and for your word, for their attentiveness when I'm rambling. Lord, I pray that all of us, Lord, that all of our hearts would be laid open before you and that we would, we would look at the testimony of your word from beginning to end, and would, we would see that every bit of it points to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, the unity of your word just boggles my mind. And, and the one to whom all of it points is the one who is our life. May we never forget that. May we never lose sight of the author and perfecter of our faith, the King of Kings, 
the Lamb who was slain, our Master and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.